Thanks. Yeah. Well, never thought this day would come, did we? <laughs> the whole Bible. We'll be finished with it this morning. <laughs> Actually, I decided I like this so much. Next week we're going to do the whole Bible again. I'm going to do a big review. <laughs> All 66 books. Which I figured out that gives me about 45 seconds per book. <laughs> All right, we're in Revelation. Um, and we're in chapter 8, which is at the very end of the seven seals. We had to kind of break it because they didn't break at a nice chapter boundary. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. For about half an hour. And then he mentions the seven angels who have the seven trumpets, which they're coming up next. Um, there, we could leave the... The seventh seal could be just a half hour of silence. Um, and we have Old Testament background for that. In, in um, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. The silence meaning basically, now you're really going to get it. <laughs> um, but another possibility, and it's a little bit more complicated, but the other possibility is that John is doing an interlock here where he he interweaves what is finishing up with what's starting. What's starting soon is the seven trumpets. What's finishing up is the seven seals. And the interlock is found in verses 3, 4, and 5. And if you read those verses, they don't mention trumpets, they don't mention seals, so you know which way do they go? Um, I think they, they could well be added to that half hour of silence. Um, we'll see later on in the book there's another interlock that that works somewhat the same way um, in modern terms you can think of um, you know you're watching a TV show and the commercial comes on and it'll say coming up next and they'll give you a little preview and 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 that could be that what that's what John is doing and so that he's trying to tie them together a little bit you can take that for what it's worth um, Alright, so we'll look at the seven trumpets which start in here in verse verse 2 and then they go on down. Um, I wanted to ask, what have we studied recently on Wednesday night that might connect with this? Linda? Yeah, they made those two silver trumpets that were um, to... Um, they would sound them for for one thing. They would sound them when they're going into battle, so they they were were to announce the battle, and and that seems to be what is going on here. That these trumpets are war trumpets. They're announcing God's judgment on um, on the world. Uh, did you notice any Old Testament connection when you looked at these different trumpets? What what is there anything from the Old Testament they remind you of? Yes, yeah. Several of them 
well over half of them are connected with some of the ten plagues in Egypt. So we, we, we've noticed that most of John's Old Testament references are from what three books? Daniel, Daniel Ezekiel, Ezekiel Zechariah. and Zechariah. Yeah. But he also has references to just about every other Old Testament book as well. And so this would be a reference to Exodus. Um, he's got just countless numbers of Old Testament references in here. Now, we go down to verse 20 and we finish the sixth trumpet. And, and this is kind of summarizing what's happening after six trumpets. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, notice that word, <laughs> that reminds us of the plague, these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So, this is exactly the same thing that happened after the first nine plagues against Egypt. They didn't repent either. And just like just like those nine plagues, these trumpets are against the idols that the, that the world is serving. You know how you know the, the different plagues were all against one or, the, one or other of the gods of Egypt. So these are against the gods that the people of John's day and, and in the future, of course, have. And yet it doesn't make them repent. They just get angry. Now... Now last week I mentioned what is the seventh of each of these? The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet. What what does that represent? The final, the final judgment, yes. So now we're waiting for the final judgment and just like we have with the seven seals, we have an interlude. <laughs> we have this gap. He, he did it before so we're already sort of used to it. But from chapter 10.1 through 11.13 is this interlude which is kind of introducing the rest of the book. The book is, is really in, in two halves. And the second half starts in, in chapter 12, verse 1. And the second half reruns the first half. It covers the, the, same, the same material that the first half covered, but in greater depth. It's going to give us some more insight that we didn't have and that we didn't gain the first time through. So we'll look at this little, little interlude. Um, there is an angel, a very powerful angel, um, and, he, and there's a book. And in verse 9, what did the angel tell him to do about the book? Take it and eat it. Yeah, take it and eat it. Where does that come from in the Old Testament? Ezekiel, Ezekiel yes. In chapter 2, when Ezekiel was commissioned to do his work, he was given a book and told to eat it. Um, so it's very very similar. And so, there's more to come. I think what this is saying by eating this book, there's more to come, and it's going to be sweet, but bitter. Because <laughs> these sweet for the people of God, but bitter for the rest of the world. So then in chapter 11, there was given me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. 
Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it is given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, where in the Old Testament do we read about measuring like this? Again, it's in Ezekiel. Yes. Yeah, the last nine chapters, chapters 40 through 48, that there is this detailed measuring of, of the temple, of the city, of the land, everything being measured. And that's where this, uh, this reference of measuring the temple is, is found. Although in Ezekiel, he doesn't leave out the court. Now, we're going to see later in the book, he measures again, and this time he's not leaving anything out. But in this case, he's, he's leaving part of it out. It's going to be tread underfoot for 42 months. Um, and this is a new. This 42 months is, is. I think this is the first time this is found in the book. But it's, it's going to be found repeatedly after this. Um, but it's given in three different ways. Uh, so you have to pay a little attention to recognize the very same period is being given. That one way is 42 months. What's another way? 1,260 days. And then three and a half years, which it, I don't think it ever says three and a half years here in Revelation. Time, two times. Time, times and a half a time, yes. Well, there is a place in the book of Daniel where, where it certainly sounds like three and a half years because it says in the midst of the week. Well, in the midst of a week of years would be again three and a half years. <clears throat> and, and this phrase, the 42 months or the time, times and a half times, it comes from Daniel. There's two places in chapter 7 and chapter 12 where that same time frame is given. And so that's I'm no doubt that's what John wants us to be thinking back on. Um, it's it's a short time. Time times and a half a time is is or half a week is is shorter than the whole week. A seven seven year period would be a, a complete period, but half of it is short. So so this time when when the outer cord is going to be trampled down is going to be short or short in God's scheme of things. Um, during the same time, we find these two witnesses here in verse 3. And they're prophesying for 1260 days, which of course is the same as 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. In verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In order to understand these, I think it's important to recognize that John is consistent in his use of symbols. Um, when he uses a symbol in one place in the book and then he uses it in another place in the book, you were supposed to recognize there's a connection there. Um, if John did not do that, I would say there's no way anyone's ever going to understand the book. But I think he did that. And we already had lampstands interpreted for us earlier in the book. And, how, and what did they mean? Churches. They were churches, yes. The seven lampstands representing the church. Um, I, I really believe it represents the church for all time. We're part of that. So these two lampstands are again, this is the church. The reason there's two in this case instead of seven uh, is because he's getting... Is it, there's two different reasons for this. Well, three really. Um, one of them is he's getting it from Zechariah 4 where it mentions the two olive trees. And in Zechariah 4, the two olive trees are feeding the seven-branch lampstand that's in the temple. So you have the connection between olive trees and lampstands there as well. The second one is that two witnesses 
are very significant in the Old Testament. What, what's the difference between two witnesses versus only one witness? Inquire two. Yes, if you're going to convict anyone, you have to have two witnesses. And these, the job of these witnesses, these are, these are witnesses in court. Their purpose is to convict the world of sin. And that's our job. We're part of the Lord's church. We are witnesses to the world around us. And the world hates us because the world does not like to be judged like that. The other reason there's two is because these two are modeled on the two great men of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And, and you can tell that from the power they have in verse six, or verses 5 and 6. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. That takes us back to the days of Elijah. And um, they, have, they have power to shut up the sky so the rain will not fall. Again, Elijah. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. That goes back to Moses. And to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Moses and Elijah were the two guys that appeared on the mount with Jesus. They represent the Old Testament. So these, these two... But basically the church today is the Moses and Elijah of the Old Testament. We are the witnesses to the world. And the world hates us. And after the 1260 days, the world comes in, the beast comes and makes war with them and kills them and leaves their dead bodies out as an insult. And the whole world celebrates. They're so happy that they got rid of them. But then the Lord brings it back to life. And then there's a great earthquake. And you come and, and, and we get back to our trumpets and we have the seventh trumpet representing the final judgment. Now, this battle against these two witnesses, killing them and then the Lord raising them back alive, that battle will be repeated in the book in more detail. This is the first time we've had it. And John, this is the way John does throughout the book. He'll bring something up, he'll go on, and then he'll come back to it, give us more detail, leave it again, and come back. And sometimes, yet a third time, we'll see he'll come back to it again before we're done. Um, so that brings us to <laughs> this section that's <laughs> rather uninspiredly called Various Personages and Events. I like the way Beale does it in his chiastic outline. It's the very center. It's called the War of the Ages. Now that's got a much better, better name for it than various personages and events. <laughs> I like the War of the Ages. Um, and he, he gave a nice outline here of seven sections in this, in this one section called the War of the Ages. And the way he divided this up, he looked for, the fr for phrases like, and I saw, or and I looked, or and behold. And wherever he found one of those, that's where he began the next one. And he went slightly beyond the end of our section. He went on into chapter um, 15 to get the seventh one, even though chapter 15, verse 1 um, begins the seven plagues. And this is another one. Those of you who came in late, I'm sorry you missed it, but we discussed the idea that John sometimes does an interlock where he introduces the next topic before he's finished with the previous one. 
to kind of tie them together in a literary sense. And I think that's what he's doing here. So now, let's look at these seven. I'm, I can't spend a lot of time on, on each of them, but um, chapter 12 is the conflict of the serpent with the woman and her seed. Now, he's not called serpent at the very beginning. What's he called at the very beginning? A dragon. A great red dragon. But in, um, in verse 9, he's called, it's the great dragon, he's the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. This is actually the first mention of the devil and Satan since the letters to the churches. They, they were, he was mentioned a couple times in those letters. But once we got into the vision portion, he's not mentioned. And the, this is why... The, the, you see, we're starting the second part of the book. In, in chapter 12, this is the beginning of the second half of the book. And it rehashes what was in the first book half. But giving us more insight... We're going behind the scenes to see why these things are happening. And, and chapter 12 is a very important explanation for why these things are happening. There is a big battle going on. There is a woman who is with child. Who is the child? Jesus. Jesus, that's right. Because He's going to rule the nation with a rod of iron. Of course, that's from, from the Psalms. Um, so who's the mother uh, of this child? Yeah, this is... It's the church. This is a real surprise because you, when you read that, you think, oh, that must be Mary. And, and in fact, that's the way the Catholics inter interpret it. But I don't think they're correct. It is the church. Now, and, and including the Old Testament church. I mean, and sometimes the Old Testament church is, is actually called that. Church, church in the wilderness, for example. And Israel, the people of God, brought forth the Messiah... And after the Messiah was brought forth, that, the, that people continued. We're part of that. And because the, the child was caught up into heaven, the, the dragon couldn't get to him. But he's really, really mad. So who is he going to go after? God's people. Yeah, he's going to go after God's people. The ones who gave birth to this Messiah. Um, and... So in verse 14, um, the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly into the wilderness to a place where she was nourished for how long? Time, times, and a half. Uh -huh. A time, times, and a half time. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, all the same amount. So John's letting us know he's, he, he's still talking about the very same period of time, but he's giving us a different view of what happens during that time. The previous view we had was of the two witnesses prophesying in sackcloth, which of course implies that this is, that they're, they're, this is not a real fun job for them. This is grievous. But now we find out why it's grievous. It's because of the serpent, the dragon. He's beating up on, on them. But he's not done with just attacking, with just working as the serpent or the dragon. He brings up a beast from the sea in chapter 13. Um, it says, The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and etc. Where is this picture coming from in the Old Testament? From Daniel chapter 7, yes. Um, the, the, the beast from the sea. And the description of him later on is a combination of all four of the beasts that are in Daniel chapter 7. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, what do those beasts represent? The nations of the world. 
Yeah, world empires. And, and, the, and they're interpreted that way for us in Daniel. So John's not going to change the meaning here. This is still world empire. Now, in John's day, it would have been the Roman Empire. But in every age, there is an empire that dominates the world and is the beast. Some of them worse than others. Um, so, but then that's not even enough. There's another beast, a beast from the land in verse 11. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, this is strange. He doesn't look at all like the other beast. He looks like a lamb, you know, little tiny little horns there that just make him look like a lamb. I mean, what's he trying to look like? Jesus. He's trying to look like Jesus. Yes, this is a counterfeit Christ. In fact, over in chapter 16, he's even called the false prophet. This beast represents false religion. And you remember back in, in, the, in the letters of the seven churches, false religion was a major problem for these churches. They had people right in their midst who, who were leading the Christians to, to do terrible sins. And, and we see it around us today. We see false religion around us that, that would try to cooperate with the evil powers of Satan and his servants. And, and that's what this beast was. Um, and that's what he is today. Um, and, and he makes it very hard on those who don't play the game. Um, he has a mark, just like we had... Remember back in chapter 7, the Lord gave, put a mark on all of His people to protect them? The counterfeit Christ has a mark too. He, so he goes and puts a mark, and in verse 17, he provides that no one will be able to buy or, or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So either you play the game or you suffer. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, in the Bible, what's the number of perfection? Seven. Seven. So, the imperfection would be a six. And repeated three times is just to emphasize the fact that this is a human number. And that's, that's exactly what he said. The number of, of a man, another way to interpret that is, this is a human number. It's not a divine number. The number of the beast, I mean, he, he thinks he's so great, but he's just human. And John is putting that in so that we, so that we will not be taken in. I mean, this, he looks so powerful. Everybody's going after him. And... and you know, this false religion, everyone's following it. Folks, this is just a human creation. This is not God. Now, if we add... Okay, John. And uh, we have the, the three parts uh, here. The, the, uh, the dragon, uh, the beast, and the false prophet. Yes, that's right. Three. What are, what are they trying to copy? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Exactly. Um, and we're going to see later on, we're going to get some more of these counterfeits. Um, the, Satan is trying to copy God, and so he's got to have three because God is three. All right, then we have the vision of the Lamb and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. We had the 144,000 introduced back in chapter 7. And then in verse 6 begins the proclamation of the Gospel and of judgment by three angels. And I'll read verse... Eight. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. 
This is the first mention of Babylon in the book, and yet we're supposed to know that this is really bad, and we're glad that she has fallen. Well, he'll introduce, he'll he'll give us much more about her later on in in the book in chapters seventeen and eighteen. Um, then in verse fourteen we have the big harvest. The Son of Man has a big harvest, and the wine press was trodden, and the blood came out, and all this, uh, all these things. And then finally. In chapter 15, we have the last scene, the saints' victory of the sea beasts and their victory song as they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Alright, so now that takes us to the seven bowls. Um, the bowls of wrath. Um, these are very similar to the seven trumpets and, and you, you may have noticed on that chiasm chart they were parallel to; they were at the very same level of the chiasm as the the seven uh, trumpets, and a number of them are the same. That they, they come, many of them come from the plagues of Egypt, just like the the seven trumpets did. Um, I'll mention in verse in um, chapter sixteen, verse sixteen, at at the end of the sixth trumpet, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called. Armageddon, um, otherwise known as Armageddon. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where that name is mentioned. It's the big battle, and yet he doesn't say much about the battle here, does he? Just they were gathered for the battle, and then finally the seventh angel comes, and that's the final judgment, and it's all over. But we're going to see this battle come up again a couple times before the book's over. So he's introduced it to us. Um, Armageddon, it means the mount of Megiddo and uh, Megiddo was a city on the on the plain of Megiddo where a lot of the great battles in the Old Testament were fought. So this is an Old Testament reference. It's a place for a big battle to take place. Um, now we come to Babylon, the great harlot, in chapter seventeen. Um, and now we're going to get a lot more detail about uh, about this woman and. I've got another chiasm picture. This is different from the previous one. John has all kinds of chiasms in the in the book. I haven't even given you all the ones that Beale even points out. But I I thought this was interesting. He takes from chapter 17 to the end of the book and shows how you have the parallel. You you have at the first level the judgment of the harlot. What's the opposite of a harlot? Good wife. A faithful wife. Yes. And notice what you see at the end, the vindication of the bride. You see, the harlot is the counterfeit. The bride is, is the, the, the true thing that the harlot is trying to counterfeit. Then we have, at section B, we have the divine judge, and then that corresponds to another one, the divine judge, chapter 20. Then in C, the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. And that corresponds to the judge, judgment of Gog and Magog. And then in the very middle, we have the Satan in prison for a thousand years and the saints reign and judge for a thousand years. So it, and it's another one of these chiasms. I'll just throw out another chiasm real quick. That the three, the dragon, the sea beast, and the, the land beast are introduced in that order, but they go out in the opposite order. <laughs> they go out in the order of the false prophet or land beast, then the sea beast, and finally the dragon. It's a, it's a chiasm in the order in which they're brought in and taken back out. Um, now, 
In chapter 17, we find that she, this woman is a city, Babylon. She's called a harlot. She's not the same as the beast, which the beast represents the government. Um, but she works in very close relationship with the beast. In fact, she's pictured as riding on the beast. Um, the beast is colored scarlet, probably for one reason, and she has scarlet as well. One of the one of the things you would think of with scarlet would be blood, and certainly the beast is guilty of of, of shedding off a lot of innocent blood. Um, and then in verse fifteen, God causes the beast to to turn against the harlot and attack her. It says in verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose. So, which is actually going to end up hurting themselves when they're done. They're going to realize, boy, this is terrible. But this is this is God's doing, not theirs. Um, and so, in chapter 18, verse 2, He cried out with a mighty voice, saying, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She is becoming a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird." And verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Remember those seven letters again. John is simply repeating the message of the seven letters. Come out of the world. Don't be attracted by what the world goes after. This the prostitution where they're, they're using what God has given them for a good purpose and they're using it for ter- terrible selfish purposes. Um, the whole book is really a warning against God's people against compromising with the world. And an encouragement for those who haven't that it's worth it. Stay, stay faithful. God will be with you. Um, now in verse 9, beginning in verse 9, they have this huge, this big lament. A lament over Babylon. And, and all these sea captains and merchants and all that are so sorry they've, that this great city has fallen and they won't get to make any money by selling her to things. That comes from the Old Testament. It comes from uh, Ezekiel chapter 26 and 27. When, when Ezekiel pronounces a lament on the city of Tyre, and the language he uses in, John uses is right out of those chapters. So that, and it's, it's the same thing. Tyre had prostituted itself for the sake of economic gain, and Babylon had prostituted herself for the sake of economic gain. Um, all right, so now we come in verse six to the marriage of the lamb. Um, in verse seven uh, of chapter nineteen, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory, glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And talks a little bit more about it. It's going to come back to that theme again later. John will. Um, so that's as much as I have time for um, that one. So the return of Jesus in starts in verse eleven. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Um, And as part of his coming is not just a coming to reward the righteous, but it's a coming to to punish the beast. And so there's a big battle. And remember, I told you that with when we did the Armageddon, it's going to come back again. And here it is. and in verse 17, the angel sending the sun, he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, and so on and so forth. Where does this come from in the Old Testament? 
Ezekiel chapter 39, the great battle of Gog and Magog. John's going to bring this up one more time in the book. And I think in that, if I recall right, I think he specifically used the name Gog in that one. All three of these mentions are the very same battle. John, you get these cycles repeating over and over, and he gives more details each time. But he keeps referring back to the same passages in the Old Testament, and, and, and that ties them together. You recognize he's, he's not, this is not another battle. We don't have three battles. There's only one in Ezekiel. There's really only one in, in Revelation. But he mentions it a number of times, adding more details each time. And now we come to the thousand years. Um, in verse 2, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, as I'm sure you all are aware, there's a whole lot of different ideas people have on the thousand years. Um, I'll tell you what I think it is, and I think most brethren will agree with me. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it right, but I'll also try to explain to you why I think that. And I, this, I, I can understand why people have various different views. If he had said it was three and a half years, that would be a piece of cake. We've already had three and a half years so many times. Very easy. It is three and a half years. And that's what is so confusing. How can it be a thousand years and three and a half years? Well, it depends what God's talking about as whether He wants to call it a short time or a long time. If it's talking about God's people suffering, it's going to be a short time. But if he talks about Satan being bound, it's going to be a long time. But in fact, it's the very same period. The main reason I know this is because at the end of the thousand years, you have the very same battle we've already had mentioned twice, and both times that was at the end of the three and a half year period. So, the thousand years is a period that we're in that period right now. We're in the three and a half years. We're in the 1260 days. We're in the thousand years. Satan is bound. And, and, and John has previously mentioned Satan being bound. Back in chapter um, 12, verse 9, when there was that battle in heaven, Michael and all that, they threw Satan out. I believe that's the exact same thing as what's going on here where the angel is binding him and putting him in the abyss so he can't deceive the nations. Jesus died to crush the head of the serpent. And that happened on the cross. And, the, and one of the big puzzles that the, the Christians of John's day had was, if Satan's been crushed, how come we're suffering like this? And the book is designed to answer that question. And we are today living in the period when He is bound. He cannot behave like He did before Jesus died and crushed His head. Now, um, we still there's a, a flip side to the thousand years, and that is in verse four. I saw thrones, and the souls of those who've been beheaded, all that, and they came to life and lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's still going on today. The righteous people, people who ha have paid with their life for for their witness to Christ. <coughs> They're being rewarded during this thousand years. They are reigning with Christ. And 
But then, in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, and in my judgment, this is, a, this is an event that has not yet happened. The, the Lord is the only one who knows when it will happen. But when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and to come out to deceive the nations. And, oh, he mentions both Gog and Magog. All right. So this is very clearly a reference to the Ezekiel 39 battle, which we already saw before. And he brings up all these armies and they attack God's people. And God rescues them with His great power. Fire comes down from heaven and devours them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is the final judgment. And this is the last time in the book that we're going to cover this. Um, the rest of the book is going to cover the good side of the final judgment. He, he, he is, a, is forever removed. He, there's nothing He can do again. He is permanently in, in, in this lake of fire and brimstone. And so now we have in the rest of the chapter, verses 11 and on, the final judgment. The books and all that. And in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Who's that for? Why is John bringing that up? Well, it's a final judgment. And it's again, it's the same purpose as he wrote the seven letters. This is to warn God's people don't cave in to the devil and his deceitfulness. You want your name written in the book. And, and so this is an encouragement for those who, who are willing to suffer for the Lord. And it's a warning for those who are compromising in order that they'll have, have it easier here, here on this earth. Alright, so all right, that was Satan's doom, the great white throne. Alright, now we come to the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem in, in chapter 21 and into a little bit into chapter 22. Um, then I saw... Yeah, sorry, yeah. The last verse you read is what you said, but it's also tells us more exactly a thousand years is what you said. Long, the long time. And yes. It says this is what happens at the end of the time of long time. Right. That's right. It tells us. Right. Yeah. We, we, we know what the next... There's two events left in history that we know are left from the book of Revelation. And one is that big battle when Satan... Seems to seems to be winning again against God's people, and the other one is when God rescues God's people and brings on the final judgment. Yeah. All right. Um, so now he sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now the sea was where the beast came up out of, so there isn't any sea anymore. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as what? Right. A bride adorned for her husband. Earlier we had the marriage of the bride with the Lamb. But again, because John does these things in cycles, that was, that was the same picture as this one. He's come back to the same, it's the same story. This is not the first time in the book when he's talked about this wonderful time after the judgment when God's people are rewarded. But it is the last time. <laughs> this is the final time in all of these cycles. And, um, but, but John's not done warning people. Look in verse 8. 
But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I want you to notice that there, this, is, this is sort of an inclusio. Um, what's an inclusio? Yeah, Matthew? Yeah, they're bookends where you start and end on the same thing. It doesn't look like it. Cowardly versus liars. But I want you to look at on the in, in, inside. Unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters. That's the world. And it's especially the world of John's day I, I'm, I, with idolatry and, and fornication being major sins. But the bookends are talking about Christians who have not been faithful. They have not been faithful because they're cowards. And as a result, they're willing to lie. Instead of be faithful witnesses, they're willing to lie about Jesus. Because if they tell the truth, they'll suffer. They're cowards. And you remember the woman Jezebel that was teaching, you know, teaches my servants to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. She was doing that because she was a coward. She was telling them lies so they wouldn't so she and they wouldn't have to suffer the persecution that comes when you're a faithful witness in in Babylon. <coughs> Alright, now jump down to verse fifteen. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. <coughs> This again comes from Ezekiel 40-48. And this time, John's not going to leave anything out. Before, he, he left part of it out. The part he measured was the part that God was going to protect. The, the temple itself. But the outer court, which I think represents our lives, our physical lives, so that we're not protected from persecution, but our spiritual lives are protected. But now everything is is measured. And in fact, and the measurements are just phenomenal. In verse 16, the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as as the width. And in fact, at the end of the verse, its length and width and height are equal. Where in the Old Testament do you have a structure whose length and height and width are all equal? It's a perfect cube. The most holy place in the temple. Yeah, that's the only place I know of. This city is now what that most holy place represented. The, the place where God is. In fact, you may have noticed it says there isn't even any temple in, in here because God is a temple. The whole city is a temple. And God is in the city. <clears throat> Alright. Um, and then down to chapter 22, verse 2. In the middle of its street, on either side of the, of the river, was what? Tree of life. The tree of life. Where have we had the tree of life before? The beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Except that in the letters of the seven churches, the tree of life was one of the promises to the people that were faithful. So here we are. The Bible has finally finished. The tree of life was guarded. I mean, God kicked... Humans out of the garden so they couldn't get to the tree of life. Station those powerful cherubim to keep anyone from getting to it. But now finally, 
the whole thing's been come full circle and we're back to what God originally had intended the earth to be. A temple to His glory. And so now we come finally to the conclusion. And the conclusion is kind of the, the course, it corresponds to the introduction in the, in the big chiasm picture or, or you could call it inclusio as well. Um, and, and the conclusion is serving the same purpose as an introduction. Trying to, to let people know you need to be faithful. And there's a number of appeals in, in this last section to faithfulness. Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates of the end of the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices what? Lying. Yeah. So a final appeal here folks don't don't go with the false prophet don't go with the prostitute be a faithful bride any last questions on revelation then yeah john just the observation you implied it uh, jesus ministry on earth was about three and a half years <clears throat> and this reference yeah. to three and a half years could be the church age of completing uh, jesus right yeah, I think I think we are we we are in that three and a half year period. Yes, yeah. Um, so you're saying he did the first three and a half years, we do the last three he and a half. He did the first three and a half on the earth, and the other three and a half he's looking down. Yeah, for, for the I think that's that's a good that's a good theory. Yeah. So next week, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the class, we're going to do a review of the whole Bible. So we'll go back back and spend forty five seconds on each book. <laughs>